And now, a presentation on the Mental Health News Radio Network. The Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Ryan, that is a freaking awesome question. You are the power, and you do not need anybody's permission. He's the only guy that ever crawled out of a grave where people didn't go, oh, ah! Don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride. You're, you're a great interviewer. You're one of the best. If this is the best God can do, I am not impressed. Welcome back to the show. He is Dave Rubin, author, comedian. You can learn more about him by going to his website at daverubin.com. Dave, welcome back to the show. And thank you, as you have been a great advocate for a Personal liberty, really appreciate it. Well, Ryan, I appreciate the kind words. And uh, I have to say, I, I think I said this to you privately after, when, when was the last time we did this? Was it for my first book? Yep, it was, was your, it, I think your second book, Don't Burn This Book. It was the second, uh, well, Don't Burn This Book was my first book. So oh. I, th- I think it was, yeah, I think it was the first book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we did this, at, that was the beginning of COVID. It's many lifetimes ago, but it was one of the most enjoyable uh, interviews that I did the entire time. So not to put too much pressure on you, but let's see oh. what we can do here. I love the pressure, Dave. Thank you so much. From where you have seen the world in the past three years, compared to where you see it going now, are you more hopeful? Are you less hopeful? And we're talking about the mentality of the people. If so, or no, why? I would say on a micro level, I'm more hopeful. And on a macro macro level, I'm less hopeful. And what I mean by that is, you know, post-COVID and this mass migration, that we've seen, uh, you know, in America, where the red states are getting redder, places like Florida and Texas are the primary two, but a couple others, and the blue states are getting bluer, meaning that the red people are leaving. That's generally California and New York. On the micro level, on the ground, if you're someone that cares about freedom and you really care about having some autonomy over your life and making sure the state is not all powerful, all powerful over you, and you want to understand what your kids are learning at school and make sure that nobody is mandating an injection into your arm and the list of things that goes on and on. Well, if you take advantage of our incredible federalist system that the founders set up, you can be in a place that is more in line with your values. Now, 10 years ago, or even five years ago before COVID, most of us thought that that was pretty much across America. Um, you know, you'd think, okay, well, maybe Cali has higher taxes and, uh, you know, this state is for legalization of marijuana. You know, the states all had their different little experiments going on. But COVID exposed to all of us how how vital that federalist system is, how vital local government is, and how much more important it should be in your day-to-day life than the federal government. Now, most of us don't have a great understanding of how that system it was set up to be, which is why we create a cult of personality around the president. And then it's as if we're just going back to King George to just give us edicts on how we should live. But for the people that are paying attention, if you move your family to a place that is in more in line with your values, and by the way, it's not just the state, then it's the city, it's the town, it's it's being involved in, in literally your local community to whatever extent you can, uh, maybe growing a little bit of food, knowing how to do things a little bit more. You know, an awful lot of people who used to mock the preppers became preppers during COVID. Uh, you have an opportunity, I think, to recreate the American dream. I think the the macro version that I would be less uh, bullish on is that while that's happening in the red states, 
I think the blue states, particularly New York and Cali, are just going down the wrong road. And there's seemingly no stop. They're both, you know, Democrat controlled basically from top to bottom and have some really terrible governors right now, at least one of whom, Gavin Newsom, wants to be president of the United States. And I just came back from a couple of days in Los Angeles, and it's a decimated city. It's not quite San Francisco level yet in terms of, you know, looking like I am legend with a zombie apocalypse of homeless people and drug addicts, but it's not that far. It feels like it's about two years off, and there's simply no reason to think it'll turn around. So again, I would say, if you are somebody who wants to take control of your life, figure out a good way to live, find like-minded people and build community, then I'm then I think there is a way to do it. Uh, but the nation as a whole, I think, is damaged right now in a way that I don't see much of a way out. Not no way out, but I don't see much of a way out. I don't see it either. Martin Armstrong, uh, legendary economic forecaster, predicts that the U.S. is going to come to a point where it'll split. Hopefully it'll be nonviolently, but quite frankly, I think it'd be wonderful if everyone could live among their own group of people to embrace whatever philosophy that they have. And quite frankly, I, I don't even adhere to any kind of group theory. I'd love to have everyone just have their own personal freedom. But if you look at the trajectory of the U.S., and while we have certain states that are not being run in accordance with tra traditions of freedom, do you think that the inevitable rot or decay from some of these poorly run cities that is allowing crime to become rampant, that is not exactly adhering to a certain moral structure, will eventually spread to these states that do have a solid uh, footing on a moral structure unless there is some kind of legal separation? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. I think about it a lot. I try not to talk about the separation or what some people you know, call like a soft secession or whatever you want to say, the breakup of the states. I try not to talk about it that often because I also think to some extent by talking about it, we sort of add energy to it. And then, and then it, it, it almost feeds on itself. But I appreciate the question. I, I don't mind talking about it, but it's something that I'm very, uh, you know, generally when I talk about things, I, I always tell people before they interview me, you ask me anything and I'll go anywhere. This is one of those things where I try to be somewhat, uh, I'll try to be very precise in my language when we talk about it, because if we offer energy to the idea that the United States are not united, that even if blue states are blue and red states are red, that there's nothing that unites us, well, it's going to be messy on the other side. And, and here's why. The red states, let's say that Texas and Florida and Montana and South Dakota and a couple other states, 10, 15 red states, let's just say, now, first off, they're not all geographically connected, but let's just say somehow they decide, you know, we've, we've decided to leave the union. We don't like what's happening with the federal government. It doesn't even protect our borders. So in essence, it's doing nothing for us other than, you know, basically breaking the economy by endlessly printing money. It's allowing illegal immigrants in. So we have to protect, protect our own borders anyway. Let's say they did that and said, you know what? We're not at war with you guys. We, we just don't want anything to do with you. We can have trade if possible. Individuals are welcome to cross our borders, but we're going to take care of our borders as we see fit. The problem with that is that the blue states basically will declare war on them. The red states and people who believe in the Constitution and federalism and the Bill of Rights and things of that nature, they, they will not mind a separation and sort of like what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. The blue states will view that as some sort of ultimate assault on freedom, which ironically, it would be the complete reverse of. And, and the people of California, I kid you not, would be clamoring for war with the people of Florida. I think we already have a sort of ideological war going on between California and Florida. So 
I would say I, I don't want to add energy to it to a certain extent, but it may be happening already. Look, if you look at the best example I can give you on this is look at the midterm elections, which were supposed to be a red wave and they obviously weren't. In New York, something almost incredible happened. In New York, Lee Zeldin, who was a little known congressman, I mean, basically nobody knew the guy till about two weeks before the election. Then he did a couple big hits and then Ron DeSantis went up there for a massive rally in New York. He ends up losing to the incumbent Democrat governor, Kathy Hochul, by about 500,000 votes. 500,000 in, in one of the biggest states in the union. About 400,000 people have fled New York since COVID. Now, some of them obviously are kids and not a voting age, and some of them may not vote Republican. But you know, by the nature that they fled to Florida and Texas, a huge percentage of them, I think it's, I think it's fair to say a good 60 to 70% of them, most likely would have been voting Republican. That means... New York really was almost within a point or so of flipping red. But now that migration has happened. That means it was almost getting there and now it got further apart. And I think that, that the same thing's going for Cali right now. Cali's losing, you know, for the first time ever since COVID, three years in a row now, Cali has had a net loss of population. It never did in its history. It was the dream of Americans. Uh, and now it's the nightmare for so many Americans. It's why I left California. So I sort of see the separation happening one way or another. And the challenge will be how do we do that separation and, and not end up in just like little constant mini wars with our fellow citizens, if, if we are still united in some respect. Well, I understand. Thank you for your answer. I don't know if, we're, if that's ever going to happen. And you'd mentioned that, okay, you don't want to entertain or give energy to this idea of a separation. I've come to this point now where, it's, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but I don't want to participate in any more uh, federal elections in any capacity. And I'll explain why, because I don't want to cast energy towards something where if I believe in a certain thing, I don't want my philosophy on life to be infringed upon other people. I want them to do whatever they want. And I feel like if you have two political parties right there, if one party gets in, half their country gets their gets their will infringed upon. And I just would rather have people just go about their lives and just be at peace. And when I went to this Ron Paul conference, which I love going to, I feel this man, Ron Paul, is so honorable. If there were people running for office that had the integrity and honor of Ron Paul, I think it'd probably feel a lot differently. But I don't think we do. I think you have a lot of people just completely corrupt. From your perspective and what you've gone through in your life, do you think there's a collective solution where everyone can be satisfied, where the country can continue to, to thrive? Or are we always going to be at this crossroads where things are just going to get progressively worse and we're just going to kind of go going down this path? And if so, where do you see this path inevitably heading to? Sure. Well, you're never going to get anywhere that everyone is happy, right? Like that's not a thing. It's what the it's what the utopians promise, but of course it's not a reality. It's why utopian promises usually end up as dystopian nightmares. So, you know, you can get a very powerful leader to come in and say, I'm going to fix it for everybody and everybody's going to be better off. But if it was that easy, it would have been done and societies come and go and they build and then they fall and all of those things. You know, it's sort of like a couple of weeks ago, uh, Donald Trump was asked about abortion and he said, you know, I, I'm going to make everybody happy on abortion. And it's like, it doesn't even matter what your feelings are on abortion. It's like, no, simply, it is simply not true. You cannot make everyone happy. You might be able to come up with a compromise that 70% of the country agrees upon. 
let's say 15 weeks. I think that that's the old Democrat position, which is closer to a Republican position this, these days. I think that would be some fair estimation, but you're never going to make the people happy who believe that, you know, life begins at conception. And you're never going to believe, you're never going to make the people who believe that a woman's autonomy is the most important thing and that you should have eight month abortions. So the, the, the people that promise these utopian things or make everybody happy, uh, I think often are are dangerous. I think you know what you're what you're mentioning is look you're you're obviously a, a libertarian or to, maybe to some extent like an ANCAP type guy, and you just you don't want to impose your will on every, on anyone else. Yeah. I think that's an extremely admirable trait. I don't want to either. I would say the reason that I that I'm involved in politics to the extent that I am is that I'm fighting to keep government as slim and trim as competent and competent as possible so it doesn't do that. Now every now and again I believe on there's I would say the state is just sort of an unfortunate utility that you need to somehow keep the wheels going so we aren't just at each other's throats because there could be a million people like you who want nothing to do with imposing your beliefs on anyone else. But if you have a whole bunch of people that want to impose their beliefs on you, you're in trouble. And, and I think that's constantly the exchange that liberty, it's, it's some, in some respects, it's why libertarians never gain too much traction politically. It's an odd movement. It, we're a political movement sort of against politics, right? Like there's, there's an inherent weakness there. But to that point, I think Ron Paul has been an absolutely incredible yeah. voice for decades who's been proven right on so many things. And most of the people who I like in Congress, say a Thomas Massey or a Chip Roy or Mike Lee in the Senate, they're mostly the libertarian types. I would say the fusion of that, just from a per political perspective, is obviously a guy I talk a lot about on this show, which is Ron DeSantis. I think he, you know, he was in the Freedom Caucus. He actually doesn't love to use the state, and we are a uh, obviously a no income tax state. But what he has shown is there are ways to use the state effectively. Uh, for example, a way to use the state effectively. If you have Disney, a giant corporation that has special benefits and special tax policies and special uh, special laws related to uh, an airport that it can have and land that it control, he uses the state to remove their special protections, thus making us more equal. He has used the power of the state to remove ESG from our institutions, to get wokeness out of schools. I think he's done that all within the, the understanding that he believes in the Constitution and he believes in the Bill of Rights and he doesn't want to trample on individual liberties. And that, to me, is the best type of politician you're going to get. I don't know how many more we're going to get like him, uh, especially if this presidential run doesn't doesn't work out, uh, because maybe enough people will be like, see, if you just try to do the right thing and pick the right fights and be a good guy, it doesn't work. It's one of the reasons I've offered him so much support. I think I think he might be the last great chance that we've got in terms of fixing this thing at a national level. Look, worst case scenario for me as a Floridian is it doesn't work out. And he's back here as our governor in Florida, which has, you know, obviously a super majority on both sides, remains an incredibly strong, you know, independent state. And, and that would be uh, depressing to me, I suppose, in that I think we could export this and make it federal and make it uh, something that the whole country could enjoy. But maybe that's not a possibility. Yeah, appreciate your answer on that. And, um, Maybe things will change in the presidential election. But I want to remind the audience that one of the first things that brought me to your attention was when we were at peak COVID idiocy, you were out fighting against the tyranny. And I always gravitated towards people. I just loved your passion and how hard you pushed back. And because you were speaking out, I think that people like you inspired others and 
when other people are inspired, they, they realize it was, it was okay. I mean, it just, it just, it's good to see other people pushing back, especially if someone is visible as you. Oh, well, I, I look, I appreciate it. I, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, I was already basically doing some version of this mm-hmm. before COVID. I was telling people what I thought about things and interviewing people. And I had also, because I had interviewed so many great thinkers about freedom and limited government, Thomas Sowell and Jordan Peterson, and Dennis Prager and all of these incredible thinkers about what the human experience is really all about and what totalitarian governments do and all those things. Well, it was suddenly like, well, man, now all the ideas that I have filled my head up with, with these great people, now I'm, it's, you know, the rubber has met the road. Here we are. They're trying to lock me up in my own house. And I've got mm. people yelling at me because I'm going walking my dog with a, without a mask on. So I think the more that it got crazy, the more I was sort of already kind of wound up to fight it. And then what you find is you start speaking up and then some other st- people start speaking up and then uh, maybe they don't lock you in your house forever. No, it was wonderful. I, 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 your clips were shared a lot. And I know that we, before you took, became uh, embracing your current positions, you had had a different philosophy before. And my understanding is that you you lost some friends in the process. And I'm sure you probably had people that uh, maybe turned away from you during COVID because I did. I mean, I'm in the process right now of losing a very close friend because I, I'm she's in the COVID eating cult and I'm not going to embrace it. And it sucks. It really sucks. I hate going it. Sucks. It. Yeah. it sucks. How do you cope with it, by the way, from you? How do you deal with it? You know, it's interesting because the road on that one seems to only go one way. So it was a bunch of people who were vaxxed, who were doing what the system told them to do. And they were very angry at people who wouldn't get vaxxed or who wouldn't wear masks or who would or or who wouldn't follow whatever the rule of the day was. But the road very rarely ran the other way. I mean, I wasn't vaxxed and I'm still not vaxxed. And I'm very now I'm it's not even that I'm proud. I'm I'm thankful to God, I suppose, that I never gave in to all of it. And obviously I had the same pressures that you and everyone listening to this had, whether it was familial or friends or uh, I was living in Los Angeles at the time where I was you know, locked down if I wasn't vaxxed or whatever stupid nonsense there was. But the road never went the other way in that I wasn't yelling at people to do what I wanted. I, I wasn't shaming people for being, being vaxxed. People would come to my house for, I would have illegal parties at my house, literally illegal parties. <laughs> and people would come in and I didn't care if they were vaxxed or not vaxxed, but people would always walk in the door. Well, don't worry, I'm vaxxed. And I was, I didn't care one way or another. I was doing what I thought was right. I wasn't going to shame. Oh, you got vaxxed. I'm going to shame you. I mean, even right now, think of the shaming we could be doing, or those of us who are unvaxxed, we could be doing an awful lot of shaming on the vax people, but the vax people also, I think are, are concerned and rightfully so about vaccine injuries and all the weird things that we've heard since. So I have no desire to shame those people. So in some ways it's connected to our earlier Uh, what we were talking about a moment ago, which is that the red states, the live and let live people, the more libertarian minded people, they don't care if you got vax. They don't care uh, what you're doing in your house. The problem is the people that do care what you what you inject yourself with and what you're doing in your house. And and we have to figure out how to arbitrage those two uh, those two positions. I remember one of your quotes uh, was, whoever fights monsters should see to it in the process that he does not become a monster. That was from your book, Don't Burn This Book, Thinking for Yourself in an Age of Unreason, which I love to read. I really respect when you communicate with your audience, you're never talking down to them, you're talking with them. I always feel like you're, you're like walking side by side. And I'm just curious, because you've interviewed Eckhart Tolle and you've been open to all these different philosophies. How, what would you, how would you describe your spirituality and how have you grown as a person in the last couple of years? 
Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. You know, I was never, my temperament is fairly cool in that I'm willing to, I've always sort of been willing to hear different people and listen to different perspectives. I chalk that up to the fact that when I was growing up in high school and really before high school, even in junior high, maybe even elementary school, I was kind of like right in the middle, meaning there were kind of like the nerds and the dorks and then there were the cool kids. And I was kind of right in the middle. I kind of, I usually hung out with the nerds and the dorks and played video games and action figures. And I loved comic books and all that stuff, but I could kind of do my thing with the cool kids too. I was sort of liked in some ways by both sides in that sense. But I always remember thinking it was like sort of work to be with the cool kids where the, I was more like naturally with the, with the dorks and the, and the gamers and all of that stuff. And I say dorks and nerds, it sounds pejorative. I don't mean it that way. Like those are my people actually in a lot of respects. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, that sense of like, oh, I can sort of see why these people are this way and why these people are this way. It sort of blended into how I started interviewing people and that I could sit down with people, you know, really far left and far, I don't even know that I sat down with that many far right, but like I could sit down with people all over the political spectrum and gain something from each of them. And it's why I've been able to do the same thing when it came to religion. I have had Orthodox Jews on my show like Ben Shapiro and debated him on certain things. I've had, you know, plenty of uh, religious Christian thinkers on my show. I've had atheists on my show, all of those things. And to directly answer your question, I would say that there was a, a chunk of my adult life, probably six to eight years, where I definitely felt that I was an atheist. As I thought, as I've thought these things through, uh, I definitely no longer consider myself an atheist. I'm, I'm a believer for sure. I believe in a, in a higher power. And I think that we can all express or find or find that higher power in various ways. Meaning I don't think the Christian is any more right or wrong than the Jew who's any more right or wrong than, than the Muslim, let's say. Those are different expressions of figuring out how to make some sense of the universe. So, you know, um, I think it was Ed Koch, former New York City mayor, Ed Koch, on his uh, tombstone, it said, uh, my grandfather was a Jew, I'm a Jew, uh, my grandfather was a Jew, my father was a Jew, I'm a Jew. That is the tradition uh, and, and the, the foods and the customs and holidays that are for the, from the people that I come from. I don't put that ahead or behind any other set of traditions. And I think we all have to figure out how to express that thing, because I would say, in essence, if you don't believe in something, you will fall for anything, right? That's the age-old adage. And I think that that's become increasingly true. It's why, actually, during COVID, largely secular liberals were the most hysterical when it came to all of the draconian measures and were ratting on neighbors and all of those things. And I actually found, especially during COVID, that the people that I had the most common cause with usually were Christian conservatives, particularly evangelicals. Whenever I'd go anywhere and they were fighting the masks and they were fighting lockdowns and it wasn't, it was directly connected to the fact that they believed in something else other than what Fauci told them on that day. But the, but the, the people who only believe in the science and the elites, they were duped by almost anything. So you end up believing in something one way or another. So it was pretty strange. It was really strange. And I used to be a Catholic. I'm not anymore. But I, I don't have a problem with anyone who believes in what they do as long as they as long as they go in peace. Are there any beliefs that you've come to or actualizations about life that you've come to that would be considered very controversial among your circles? Well, I would say when I was on tour with Jordan Peterson, one of the things he would talk about almost all the time uh, during all our talks was 
that he believed that having children, becoming a parent, was was so fundamental to the human experience that almost nobody can live a fully actualized life without it. Now, that's not to say that there are not great people who don't have kids. That that is not to say. And first off, there are some people who can't have children, right? Like now, you can adopt or whatever, but there are some people who physically can't. There are some people who, for whatever reason, never meet the partner that they're supposed to live with and everything else. So he didn't mean it in that sort of strict judgmental sense. But his argument was that becoming a parent and then ultimately a grandparent, and if you're lucky enough, a great grandparent, is so fundamental to the evolution that you're supposed to experience while while being a human being that almost no one can do it without it. And again, there's a very small sliver of people. You might find an artist who can literally put all of her his or her energy and force, life force into that experience and then and then live a very fulfilling life. You would have to ask them on their deathbed whether they would have traded some of that to, to maybe have a family or something. But I think the, the direction of what Jordan was saying was deeply true and it, it shifted me on children and I now have two children. We have two kids who are both uh, one and a little older than one. So I got, in essence, I have, we have twins running around here who are pretty much running the show. And I can tell you, you know, everybody says you can't really explain it till you have them, but you can't really explain it till you have them. <laughs> and then you realize that life is about something much more important than you, that, that this thing's been going on before you and it'll be going on after you. There's no words to explain it that don't sound silly and cliche. But, you know, I did have a moment about six months ago when our, our younger son, Luke, he had lost some color in his face and uh, seemed like he was dozing off a lot. We suddenly got very concerned that he was having some kind of... Uh, we didn't know what it was, maybe some kind of heart issue or something. And we're racing him to the children's hospital emergency room. And I'm so in the sorry. car and I'm, well, he turned out to be completely okay. It was, a, it was a freak thing. Thank God. But I'm, I'm in the car thinking, you know, God, you could take me now. You could take me. Don't take him, take me. How can I possibly explain what that is other than it's a thing that millions of people now know and millions of people knew that are long gone. It's, it's a human thing that is fundamental and fundamentally true and I think that that's something I've learned in the last year that maybe I didn't know so intimately. I knew it maybe intellectually, but not personally. Wow. Congratulations on your, your children. And I know they have people who say, oh, your children, they change you. Well, I don't know if this has happened for you, but when I had my child, I became so much more suspicious and self-aware of every single situation and danger and, mm. and less, probably a lot less trustworthy people because I don't know. I, I look at everyone as a potential a threat for my kid. I just want to protect them at all at all costs. Uh, when you think about your outlook on life, you, you said you you finally experienced something. You experienced something that you you couldn't have had like because you had a person account with it. How did that fundamentally shift your perspective on life and where you are going for as far as your goals in life go? Um, well, I've definitely thought more about the sort of. Uh, I guess the not the I don't mean the length of my life in years specifically, although that I guess I do think about that a little bit more at 47 now. But just sort of what do I really want my life to be? In other words, before kids, you know, I, I have a obviously a successful career and I have the 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 nice accolades of whatever this thing is that I do that people say nice things to me and the, the work that I do, I guess, resonates with people and that's that's really nice. And I sort of felt that that was enough. Uh, now on the other side of that with kids, I see this other thing that really hopefully will be a much more important legacy 
is that if I can be a part of filling these kids up with the good ideas that I believe in and showing them that I was a decent person along the way, then hopefully they will, in their own lives, live to fight for the same things and continue a tradition of freedom and and live an actualized life in a good way. So I guess it it, it sort of put all the things that I believe in to the test. And, and the great challenge will be, will I be successful? It's one thing to be successful at it at one. You know, they don't leave the house that often. There's not a lot of things <laughs> I have to protect them from. We just have to make that, they, you know, make sure they're eating and that their diaper yeah. is uh, clean every now and again. But once they're out there in the real world and they're confronted with all the bad things, we have to make sure that, you know, they know how to defend themselves from them. I think it's going to be so hard uh, because, you know, we both have young kids and, you know, trying to explain to them that the world's not exactly, you know, all candy canes and stuff like that. And you have to see how crazy it's going to get. Uh, uh, Lao Tzu once said, I'm going to read this, key to growth is the introduction of higher dimensions of consciousness into our awareness of all the things that you did to uh, expand your consciousness and awareness, what were the two that were most profound and had the biggest impact? You know, I think, well, I'll give you a sort of an easier one first. I mean, the easier one, I guess, is just having some of the conversations that I've had on the show, meaning really being open when I listen to Eckhart Tolle, who I've become friends with. I mean, the fact that That's I can awesome. text him, I, you know, I can text the guy if I have something on my mind, like it's pretty incredible, you know, yeah. or that one day, you know, the way Eckhart got on my show, he contacted me. He said, Dave, you know, you're doing something related to politics that I think is really needed. I thought, man, the fact that this guy knows who I am, how incredible. <laughs> so I'd say the first one is the easy one um, in that I've listened to people. I've listened to better ideas. I've listened to people with different experiences in the world. And I've tried to incorporate those things into my life. And I think that that's, that's one way of reaching a higher plane. You know, we can all get somewhere by ourselves, but then you need people to fill you up with good stuff so you can go beyond that. That would be one. I would say, let me think on another sort of spiritual, you know, another thing I think that is kind of, I would say, kept me sane and connected me to some of the spiritual side and everything else is, uh, as you may know, I do my off the grid August with no phone and no computer and no news and no television and anything else. I think this was my seventh August doing it and disappearing for a month, one month without the madness. Sometimes I read, sometimes I don't. Sometimes we've gone to Bora Bora. We did a Mexican rainforest this past year. Sometimes one year during COVID, we were just around the house. But just stepping away from the craziness and letting the brain slow down. I mean, one of the cool things about it, when people ask me, it's, it's sort of hard to believe, but I kid you not, two weeks into off the grid, I'll suddenly have a thought about a friend in third grade that I have not thought about in 40 years. I'll remember their name, what their house looked like. You know, I'll, I can suddenly replay songs in my head. Song after song, every single word is back in my head. I'll have a memory of, you know, a, a baseball game. I went to a Yankee stadium in 1988 like this because our brains are so inundated with nonsense. And, and that's just a function of a modern life and a function of a, a technological age that we're in. But if you step back from that a little bit, you might be able to piece together some of the other things that were, were part of how we all lived before all this. Thank you. I'm so glad you said that. Do you think that that's part of the way that people are kind of in a digital prison that, you know, they're in the constantly involved and over distraction, maybe they can't fundamentally see that some of the rights that they have are being taken away or they can't see the degradation of the country because, you know, I remember 
like maybe five years ago, people used to go to football games and they go to basketball games and have fun. And now every week it's the Jerry Springer show. It just seems like there's this constant degradation. I wonder if it's because people are just overly distracted or they can't truly see the magnitude of the problem that's ahead of them. And maybe they would see that if they didn't, um, weren't overly yeah, distracted. Yeah, I, I think... Them. I, I can't say that it's all of it leading to the degradation of society, but it's certainly a part of it. You know, you can get almost anything you want online, right? I mean, you can have your food delivered to you. You can, within within reason, you can basically have all of your sexual needs met. You can, have whatever, whatever it is you want to be distracted by, you want to, you know, and I don't even mean that in a nefarious way necessarily. Like you might be obsessed with learning about the cosmos. Well, you can watch videos about the universe all day long or read every book, you know, wh whatever it might be. A lot of it is nefarious or a lot of it is designed, you know, the endless clicking and the doom scrolling and the pages never end. Yeah. A lot of it's actually designed to keep the mind constantly going or feed you that dopamine hit over and over. But I don't mean it completely in a, in a nefarious way. Uh, but yes, we are, we have endless distractions. You know, back in the day, you and I lived in New York City. Back in it's the day. Stand-up comedy. You and I lived in New York City. And, you know, there would be days when we were doing stand-up back in the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, I didn't have a phone. I got a cell phone, uh, I think, about a week before 9-11. I was in, in New York City during 9-11. I didn't have a phone before that, but I was mm -hmm. doing stand-up. And I would have to go to the clubs and you didn't have a phone. You didn't know what time you were going to be. You know, they'd say, get there at seven. You didn't know you were going to be on 7, 38, 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever it was. Or if you were going to go meet a friend, th this would be a better example. You go meet a friend back in the old days. You'd say, okay, we're going to meet, you know, we're going to meet on the corner of, uh, of Broadway and 82nd. Well, if you didn't have a phone, you'd get to the corner of 82nd. And if they weren't there, you'd have to wait. And you know what you used to do? You used to people watch. You just look at human beings basically, right? And you could do that for a long time and be very, very entertained, or you'd think about something or you'd stare at the sky, but now we don't stop at all, right? If you, if a friend yeah. says, meet me on the corner and they're not there at that moment, you are on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, the second they are there and a world is going by you and you're staring at this thing. And uh, look, people go on vacations to the most exotic places on the planet and they, you know, they're mostly they trying to take problem. Instagram selfies. Th this is a problem. Dave Rubin, thank you so much for being with us today. Again, Dave's author, comedian, uh, he's best-selling author. You can learn more about him by going to his website, DaveRubin.com. Dave, thank you so much for sharing your time, wisdom, and enthusiasm. It's awesome to see you. Anytime, my man. Anytime. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that concludes today's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. Special thanks to our unbelievable guest, and special thanks, as always, to our virtues, Miss Carrie O'Connor, Miss Constance Dallas, and our associate producer, Jenny Lamisa. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth, please go to our website at outerlimitsradio.com. And till the next time we meet, my friends, I wish upon you an abundance of peace. Love and beers. Take care and thank you so much for listening.